I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. And connects the dots on what's going on. And connects the dots. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I just got caught in a loop. Terrible, isn't it? On today's episode, you'll get to know Toronto outreach worker Lorraine Lamb, and she'll fill you in on some of the barriers that folks are facing when it comes to accessing city services like Streets to Homes. It should maybe be called Streets to Please Hold. Who is this again? Try back later. Also, Premier Doug Ford said something really stupid I simply cannot ignore. Plus, a look at the history of the housing crisis in the city of Toronto, and it might explain why, 100 years later, you still don't see much, if any, low-rise density housing in certain neighborhoods. All of that coming up on Today in T.O. Lorraine Lamb is an outreach worker and case manager in the downtown East area of Toronto. If you follow her on social media, then you know she shares some truly heart-wrenching truths about experiencing homelessness and marginalization in the city of Toronto. I had reached out after she posted about someone she knew who was homeless and had been for more than a year. This person had left a violent partner and was dealing with a stage three cancer diagnosis. This person was going into the hospital to have the tumor removed. And since this is considered a day surgery, they were discharged back to the streets to recover. You'll hear more about that as well as the response from Toronto's Streets to Homes program. But first, I wanted to know how Lorraine got into this type of work. Honestly, it was a little bit of an accident. Um, I, I mean, growing up, I was always really curious about people's stories and how they ended up where they are. Um... And I found opportunities to volunteer and support organizations where I could. And uh, when I was going to school at U of T for my undergrad, I went to a local drop-in near the ROM at the Church of the Redeemer and went in there to help prepare meals. And I am incredibly useless in the kitchen. And the lovely volunteer coordinator at the time was like, you know what, why don't you just go and and talk to the guests who are coming? so essentially, yeah, I was I was relieved of my volunteer duties and then went to go connect with people who were in the dining room. And I showed up, you know, the same days every week and got to know a lot of the people in the community um, and their stories. And as I got to know folks, I was just really moved by all the unlearning I had to do about, you know, the city and homelessness and larger societal structures and also really wanted to find ways to work alongside folks and support people in their various journeys toward their goals. Um, Yeah, and so that's kind of how I started. And 15 years later, I'm still here doing this work. Lorraine mentioned unlearning, something I think is critical. It's just as important as learning, in my opinion. And imagine you drive a car here in Toronto, and then you go to the UK, and there you drive on the other side of the road. You're going to have to unlearn some things if you want to be safe, considerate, and follow the rules of the road. So in the spirit of untethering limiting beliefs, I wanted to know if there were some examples of unlearning in this particular space. Oh, man, like there's so many. I think the two things that come to mind, um, one of the things, I don't know 
about you, but I definitely grew up hearing this a lot where there, you know, people would just be like, oh, you know, those people should just get a job, right? And if you just get a job, then obviously, like, you'll figure out how to, like, come out of poverty. And I think, you know, just seeing all the barriers that existed for people to find basic employment and barriers that were, like, you know, not having water or food or, like, a place to sleep and even a place to go to the public bathroom. So, you know, realizing that a lot of these statements that we hear that get thrown around about what those people should do are laden with privilege and things that we don't think about. And I think the other piece connected to that around the unlearning is that, you know, I grew up with this idea that, like, um, everybody belongs. And so everybody in this city is, like, looked out for. But realizing and unlearning that actually systems were set up um, to keep certain people in a place of oppression. Um, so it's not just, you know, people having to work harder. It's it's that the system itself was set up um, to set people up in a way to fail. Um, those are the two things that definitely come to mind, you know, and, and like, there's this idea that people who are poor and people who are homeless are like, you know, incredibly lazy or, or whatever it is. But yet, like, realizing that it takes a lot of work to just be able to survive. And the people that I've gotten to know over the years are so far from lazy. They're some of the hardest working people that I know. In the city of Toronto, there is the Streets to Homes program. Along with partners, the goal is to provide street outreach and housing-related follow-up supports to assist people who are experiencing homelessness and sleeping outdoors in finding and keeping housing. It sounds fine in theory, but there are still many barriers when it comes to getting assistance from Streets to Homes. I mean, I'll start off by saying that Streets to Homes was created as a way to sort of like coordinate access. And in my experience, it has been terribly ineffective and not inefficient. I will say that there are individual folks at Streets to Homes over the years that I've worked with and have deep respect for, and we have great working relationships and I'm really grateful for the work that they try to do. But the actual system itself is created... Um, in a way that's terribly inefficient and it doesn't work. I mean, for starters, you know, Streets to Homes is called Streets to Homes, but, you know, folks in the streets are like, well, there's no homes to move people into. So really, <laughs> uh, what's the point? Um, the barriers that folks that I have worked with, um, I mean, for starters, you know, the Streets to Homes will only work with people who are street homeless. And so that means that, you know, if you're living in an encampment or riding transit or, or sleeping in an alcove or a ravine, you can access streets to homes. But if you're someone who's maybe couch surfing, you're just kind of staying at a friend's house this week and next week you're staying at a different person's place. And then the week after you're on the street, um, you're not considered street homeless and you don't qualify for supports with streets to homes. And my experience with streets to homes, too, is that they're sort of like different um and tiers of access in terms of what even streets to homes folks can have access to. Um, in my experience, for instance, you know, there are streets to homes housing workers who support people to try to get housing. So their role is to um, help people maybe get documentation or taxes done or whatever it is, those pieces to move towards housing. Um, but they don't have the same access to shelters, for instance, as the streets to homes outreach people do. And streets to homes outreach people, um, you know, don't have necessarily the same access as a city's encampment team. And so everything does feel really fragmented. Um, and so for folks who are outside who are looking for supports, 
my experience is that people are often really frustrated because um, they just feel like they can't actually get the help that they need. Um, also, I think the reality, too, is that um, Streets to Homes uh, teams sometimes, well, in my experience, often have a hard time connecting with the people that they're working with because people are also quite transient. There's also not the same level of trust necessarily that exists between Streets to Homes workers and the folks who are outside. So people who are, out, are outside are incredibly receptive and wanting services and wanting supports, but they want that from people that they trust. And frankly, a lot of folks that I work with don't have that same kind of relationship with streets to homes workers. And yet they're sort of the ones that um, have the keys to housing and, and certain resources that people like myself who are, you know, on the ground outreach workers don't have. So that's definitely another barrier and a problem in terms of actually supporting people. Let's now get more specific. One story that Lorraine shared was about someone who had been diagnosed with stage three cancer, had a surgery to remove the tumor, but was unhoused. So what about the folks who, like this person, may be dealing with more than just homelessness? It's shocking the number of people who I have met on the streets who have pretty serious health diagnoses. So this person is not the first person I've met who's homeless and trying to navigate cancer treatment while like living outside. Um, this, specific, like, this specific person um, is actually not couch surfing. He's street homeless. And he's street homeless because he knows that if he was couch surfing, he wouldn't be able to access support from streets to homes. So he's got a pretty serious um, health diagnosis. And they're outside um, trying to navigate the stressors of surviving outside, um, food insecurity, where to find a bathroom, this cancer situation and this medical procedure he's going to have to go through. It's a lot. And uh, this person, they're connected with a streets to homes housing worker who, you know, has been doing their best in trying to, you know, okay, update his housing application to say, okay, this person needs housing urgently. Um, but, you know, this housing worker with streets to homes was not able to provide a temporary spot or shelter or something for this individual. And this housing worker, I trust their intentions, this housing worker told us to call Central Intake, which is sort of the city centralized system to try to access a shelter space. And so the frustration here is, well, if this housing worker with streets to homes can't actually access any shelters, then what is the point of <laughs> having this streets to homes person um, involved in this process? Because technically, I can also navigate this housing application and do the work with this individual. And so I think on a larger scale, the city often says like, oh, people need to engage streets to homes. They need to work with streets to homes in order to get housing. But frankly, a lot of the folks that I work with who do have streets to homes workers will also will often come back to me to say like, well, streets to homes haven't really done anything for me. Um, you know, a part of that is that this gate kept access to resources and this coordinated, I use coordinated loosely, this coordinated access piece is actually really inefficient and really unhelpful. Um, and so at the end of the day, the person who suffers is the person who is most vulnerable and is this person that I'm working with who is on the streets with this cancer diagnosis and, and treatment. Just imagine and consider the privilege to just imagine. If you were going through one of the most stressful and scary times of your life, and you were doing it while being unhoused? Think about the comforts you enjoy, your 
cozy bed, your TV, plugs for your devices, access to the internet, a fridge with cold, tasty drinks and a cupboard with your favorite snacks, a private bathroom, a shower, the list goes on and on and on. And not having access to any of that, compounded with the trauma of being unhoused and having health concerns, creates this closed loop of marginalization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the process to call... um you know, to get, to try to get a shelter, like you have to call central intake. So yes, as you mentioned, you have to have a phone. And so if a person doesn't have a phone, they rely on, you know, maybe agencies or organizations that are open with a phone. But if places are closed and, you know, a person might rely on a pay phone. And let's be frank, how many pay phones have we seen lately in the city, right? And also the reality too, is if there are no beds, they tell you to call back every hour. Well, most people aren't able to do that. There's often long wait times as well. Um, And so I think like there is an expectation for people who are on the streets to access services, except the services that are set up have so many barriers that it's actually really hard for people to access these services. And so then there are folks like myself, like people who are working frontline, trying to sort of be a bridge to help support people to access these services. But we just keep running into these different barriers. And I keep using the word gatekept because it's true. Like there's only certain folks who are able to access what meager resources are actually available. And it's really, really frustrating. In a moment, you'll hear what can be done to help bridge the gap, so to speak. What resources and additional services are needed to drastically improve these systems aimed at helping folks find and retain suitable shelter and housing. Stick around, that's next. more from Toronto outreach worker and case manager Lorraine Lamb, I wanted you to hear this brief exchange between a reporter and Premier Doug Ford. And I think it'll help illustrate some of the unlearning that needs to be done when dealing with an issue like homelessness. The question was about an encampment in a Hamilton park, but it could be any city, any encampment in any public space. Have a listen. You have to look at the communities around there you know, the families and the kids that go to these parks, you can't have encampments here. You just can't. They have to move on, and uh, you don't see them, obviously, in the winter, so they're living somewhere, but we're putting $27 million towards that. But we, we can't have uh, these people going in and taking over communities, taking over parks. All you have to do is go into that community, start door knocking around there, and ask them if they want these uh, folks living in their parks where their kids go and play. The answer is overwhelmingly, no, they don't. Where could these folks go, do you think? Well, again, uh, we've given $27 million to uh, the city for shelters, and we're going to work with them hand in hand, but they're going to have to find the same location where these people live in the winter when they aren't in the parks as they do in the summer. Not only is that disrespectful, it's also inaccurate, and it plays into some of the dangerous rhetoric that is keeping folks in a loop of marginalization, homelessness, and poverty. We do have four very distinct seasons here in Toronto, each with their own very distinct issues impacting vulnerable people and communities. It's not the winter right now, so some are using public park spaces for temporary housing and tent encampments. 
So while it might not be below freezing outside, it is hot enough to cook an egg on the sidewalk and air quality has been hazardously poor in the past couple of weeks. And so far, the city's response has been to stay indoors, okay, find a splash pad, sure, or navigate their heat relief network, which basically recommends that if you're downtown, you go to the Eaton Center, which is not a solution for most precariously housed folks. And guess what? You need internet access in some way to get online to even attempt to navigate this system. This is similar to the city's winter quote-unquote plan, and it's simply not working. So when it comes to Toronto's Streets to Homes program, what can happen right now to help ensure that it works better and actually gets people into suitable housing? For one thing, definitely like funding and resources, we need to sort of look at how the city is spending their funds and dollars. Um, you know, one big thing that I've been thinking a lot lately is about how services are made so impossible to access. So one example is that there's um, a new chunk of housing that's been made available in the Spadina and Dundas area. Super duper exciting. I think there's less than 100 units there. Um, so the housing provider at this building has access to a few units where they have given to their clients and such. But the rest of the units are only accessible through um, this, what they call the coordinated access list. And this list is, again, like sort of managed by the city. It's managed by Streets to Homes. And the only way to get access to these units is if you have a Streets to Homes worker um, who is actively working with you. And that Streets to Homes worker will then need to be able to get in touch with you. Um, And oftentimes, like, that's where some of um, the breakdown happens because Streets to Homes folks are not always great at connecting with their individual clients and caseloads. I trust that they're doing their best again, but the system is set up so poorly. Um, So we definitely need to remove these barriers to housing because frankly, if these units were made accessible um, to the larger community and like frontline workers, for instance, can just like make referrals, like I can definitely help fill (laughs) this building right away. We would get 80 people off the streets. Um, the other issue too, is the way that the housing list is set up. Um, you know, the list was moved online in the last couple of years. So a lot of folks who applied back, you know, in the 2010, before this was all online, if they weren't able to move their application online, their applications have been canceled. I'm working with two folks, for instance, who applied back in 2010. One specific person got an offer in 2016, but because he was homeless and, you know, not reachable, they couldn't reach him to tell him that his turn was up. And so they canceled his application. And so I'm working with him now. And he's like, what's happening with my application that I applied for in 2010? And he like brought me the original, <laughs> it's like a fossilized piece of paper at this point, the original thank you for your application letter. And we've discovered that his application has been canceled and we have to reapply all over again. Um, these are the things that people are grappling with. So it's it's actually so impossible for so many people who are outside to get housed because of these systemic barriers that we've put in place. And so as a result, we're seeing more and more people sort of stuck um, out in limbo when really this doesn't have to happen. We can just create more efficient systems that actually help people. When it comes to the divisiveness of encampments, what is Lorraine's hope for the rest of us? You know, I think, frankly, like when people are upset about things to do with, oh, you know, I don't want this person in the park. I don't want this person on transit. I don't want this person in this coffee shop. 
I think we need to ask better questions in terms of like, okay, fair, but um, where are people supposed to go, right? Like um, people have no options. Like people are, you know, sitting in a 24-7 coffee shop because they have no other options. People are living in encampments because they have no other option. And my hope for us collectively is that we ask better questions instead of just focusing on like, well, I'm uncomfortable or I'm scared of seeing this thing. Like, okay, that's fair, but let's let's zoom out a bit. Like, why are people in this space in the first place? And I would hope that we can find a measure of compassion and empathy and, and the level of understanding that like, actually we live in a really, really, really broken system. Um, and people are, are honestly just trying to survive. There's... This might be a tangent, but I know like one of the big conversations that people often have around encampments is, oh, people are defecating in public property and whatnot. But I'd love to just ask a question, like when was the last time we had to use the washroom in a public space, right? Like I was, I'm able to run into the Eaton Center and, and use the washroom there, but there's security everywhere and they often are not allowing certain people to come in to use the washroom. None of the folks that I work with wake up and they're like, oh, you know what I'd love to do today? I'd love to pee in someone's backyard. No one's doing that. But we don't have options for people. There are no public bathrooms anywhere. So um, my hope is that we, as a society, ask better questions to really try to understand the landscape of what people are working with. And then we try to work towards solutions together instead of trying to, you know, like put, put those people against other people. If you don't already, I highly recommend you follow Lorraine Lamb. You'll find her on Instagram at Lorraine Lamb Chops. That's L-A-M. Uh, but one last thing. When it comes to mutual aid, you cannot pour from an empty cup. So I was curious to know, what fills her bucket? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think um, it changes season to season in terms of what I need. I I guess I personally just look at the community of folks that I'm working with and like, they're not giving up. So I don't feel like I have the luxury to just say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, the sense of urgency is real. I frankly have buried and lost so many people over the years. I would say too that like right now, the average age of a homeless man, um, the average lifespan of a homeless man is like in their mid forties and for a homeless woman is in their mid thirties. Um, so I'm 35 and you know, the last number of women in the community that have died who are unhoused who are in their 30s like myself. And I feel like my life is just getting started, but yet it's not the same for people who are living on the streets. So I think for me, like the urgency is there. Like I, I just deeply believe that like Toronto um, can be different. It can be better and that we have to work towards it. Um, I see the community fighting for each other and keeping each other safe and you know, and they're pressing on. So I, I want to support that and join into their effort to keep pushing for change and pushing for better. Um, but yeah, it's also hard to not get discouraged. You know, everybody that I'm working with right now who are unhoused, you know, they all come to me and they're like, I just want housing. And I'm like doing everything that I can. And sometimes the only thing I can do is say, you know, um, we have some tents and sleeping bags that just came in. Why don't you take this for now? And we'll just keep pushing. And it's like super discouraging to do that. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we have a choice. We can't just give up. Thanks to Lorraine Lamb for sharing some of her time and energy with me and therefore with you. Now on the topic of housing, 
You may think that the lack of affordable options in Toronto is a bit of a newer issue, but it's really not. In fact, thanks to a bylaw from 1912, affordable low-rise and multi-unit rental apartments were banned in some residential neighborhoods. And more than 100 years later, we are still feeling the effects. Producer Glenn Bergonier has more. And the housing crisis might feel like something new to many people, but it's actually been going on for about 100 years, if not more. You see, back in the turn of the 20th century, Toronto had grown to become Canada's second largest urban centre, second to only Montreal, and due to a massive influx of immigrants and population migrations, there was far below the necessary amount of available homes. And one of the largest problems was the city had flat out banned the erection of apartment buildings in 1912, mainly because they were seen as immoral. Apartments back then rarely exceeded four stories and generally did fit in with the aesthetics and architecture of surrounding neighborhoods. But due to their highly Protestant history within the city, many of the gatekeepers in Toronto viewed these apartments as unethical restraints on the natural order. Those living in these apartments were viewed as less likely to have children, and many feared that this can turn Toronto into a neo-New York that would stunt children and lead to unhappy adults. One person accredited for instilling this sense of nimbyism was a physician by the name of Charles Hastings, who wrote a report focusing on the unsanitary conditions of an inner-city slum next to City Hall, which was followed by more doctors writing more reports on similar negative views of these apartments. And so, Bylaw 6061 was created, which heavily limited the development of apartment buildings to just a handful of major roads and banned from all residential neighborhoods. This only briefly deterred developers who quickly found a workaround to build some of these buildings in areas where it wouldn't be allowed, which did include multifamily dwellings that were actually seen as better than the crammed single-family houses that were around. And by 1931, over 20,000 apartment units had been created within the city. Sadly, this was still a far cry from the number needed to house Toronto's ever-growing population. Experts agree that this bylaw affected how the city of Toronto approached housing and continues to directly fuel the still-felt NIMBY movement when it comes to building homes or living units in what was designed as residential neighborhoods. There were admirable attempts to readdress the zoning issue in the 60s, but this was quickly met by increasingly strong opposition from homeowners and ultimately was shut down a few years later. And so, over 100 years after the invocation of Bylaw 6061, The city of Toronto is still scrambling to increase necessary affordable housing to match our still-growing population. Housing experts such as Richard Harris, an urban historical geographer, and Richard White, a Toronto historian, suggest that if this wave of Nibbianism was not introduced, Toronto could have gained a much-needed wealth of attractive, historic, and medium-density apartments, which ultimately may not have solved all of our housing problems but would have fostered a train of thought that could have competed if not completely eradicated the ever-exclusive nimbyism for a more inclusive way of thinking. Isn't it nice to know that very little has changed in the past century when it comes to housing in Toronto? Oh, and in case you couldn't tell, I'm being sarcastic. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So in the meantime, try and stay cool. And look, there's nothing cooler 
than sharing this pod with a friend. I don't make the rules. Till next time. Bye-bye.